Shall we pray as we stand? Lord God, we do thank you uh, for the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we do praise you that he didn't uh, stand aside from creation, but entered into the mess of our world to meet us uh, where we're at. And Lord, this morning as we look at this passage, we pray that you'd uh, open our eyes to who the Lord Jesus is, make him bigger in our hearts and minds, that we may follow him uh, with our lives, we pray in his name. Amen. Great, please do uh, take a seat. And do, do turn back to the passage that we had read a moment ago, John 5, page uh, 1068. That would be great, 1068. You may have heard um, the story of the girl who was uh, drawing a picture as she sat uh, at the kitchen table. Drawing away, her mum says to her, oh, you know, what are you, what are you drawing here? God, she replies. And her mum says, well, no one knows what uh, God looks like. Her mum replies, well, they, daughter replies, well, they will when I'm finished, she says indignantly. Well, as we uh, head into the autumn, we're kicking off uh, a new series, as Richard said, looking at John's Gospel. And really the big issue that we're considering is this. It's the identity and the work of Jesus Christ. Who is Jesus Christ and what has he come to do? And we'll see that if we want to know uh, what God is like, all we need to do is look at Jesus. The identity of Jesus, that is the great question that John, our author here, a friend of Jesus, wants to address in his eyewitness uh, gospel account. Just flick over for a moment to page uh, 1090. Uh, in John's Gospel, 1090, to John 20, verse, verse 30. This is the big purpose of John's Gospel. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are recorded that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That is the purpose of John's writing for us. For all of us, that is a question, isn't it, that really, really matters. We need to know who Jesus is, what he's come to do, what the work of God is, if we're to serve him, if we're to please him, uh, if we're to live for him. I guess if we're here this morning and we're considering, well, well, who is Jesus? We're thinking about his claims. Then we need to get that right, don't we? Otherwise, we'll go in the wrong direction, we'll get the wrong conclusion. We'll just rely on on second-hand doubts, rehashed ideas of other people. Maybe you're here this morning and you're thinking, but I know who Jesus is. I've been coming here for 30 years to this church. I know what he came to do. Why are we doing key stage one stuff in our morning service? Well, as we look at Jesus, as we look at what he's come to do, the bigger he will become to us in our minds and our hearts. The bigger he is to us, the more we'll honour him uh, with our lives, the more we'll trust him, we'll worship him, we'll live for him, the more energy uh, and time as a church we'll devote uh, to the work of God. That's why it's important. The start of chapter 5, what we're looking at here, it marks the beginning, if you like, of the second part uh, of the first half of John's Gospel, And what we've got here is a section which is bookended um, by two signs, two healings, both conducted, interestingly, on the Sabbath. And both signs have as their focus the identity and the work 
of Jesus. And we see, we'll see over the next few weeks, all the way through from chapter 5 to chapter 10, the identity of Jesus is right at the top of the, of the agenda for John. Last week we were, we were coming back from holiday and we were staying at a friend's house. And um, the friend had a copy of Richard Dawkins' book, The God Delusion, uh, on her shelf. I'd never read it. Um, picked it up, a bit curious, dipped into it. And I was genuinely astonished to read Dawkins say at one point that Jesus never claimed to be God. Never claimed to be God. Really? Really? What about what John said? What about John chapter 10, verse 30? Jesus says, I and the Father are one. You can't get, can you, more of a claim to divinity than that. Chapter 9, as we'll see later, the healing that bookends this section uh, of John's gospel. Jesus says of the blind man that he's asked um, to heal, that he heals. He says he's not blind because of his sin, but so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. John 14, verse 8, anyone who's seen the Father, has seen me, has seen the Father. John wants us, he wants us to get to grips with the identity and the work of Jesus Christ. Just up front, what, what is the big application of this morning's passage? What is the big application? I think it's this. Because of who Jesus is and what he's come to do, whatever problem we've got, whatever issue we have, whatever decision we face, it pales into insignificance compared to the importance of being found on the right side of Jesus. What's on your mind this morning? What have you got? Worries about work? Concerns about children? Financial problems? Health issues? We may be facing difficult times. Many of us are facing tough times. God knows. God cares. But in the end, these things, they pale into insignificance compared to the importance of being found on the right side of Jesus. Well, let's get into the passage. There are just two points that I want to uh, draw out um, this morning. And the first is this. Jesus at work is God at work. Jesus at work is God at work. John wants us to see Jesus at work is God at work. We see, don't we, in in verse 1, do turn back, I haven't got an open page, 1068. Verse 1, that this healing occurred uh, on, uh, during a feast, it was a time of festival. So Jerusalem would have been really buzzing, really vibrant as people poured in uh, through the city gates. And do you notice how precise John is in his description of the location of this incident? It takes place, doesn't it, at a pool uh, near the sheep gate called Bethesda, surrounded by five covered colonnades. Interestingly, I was, I was reading that this, um, this location uh, was unearthed in 1888 in the northeast corner of uh, Jerusalem. It had been buried under rubble since about 70 AD when the city, that part of the city had been destroyed. Many had doubted for centuries whether this place actually existed. Now you can go there, have a selfie taken, eat an ice cream outside it. John wants us to know this is uh, a real place. It's a pool, isn't it, where many severely disabled people uh, are gathered. The blind, we're told, the lame, the paralyzed. You can picture them surrounding uh, the pool. And the focus, our focus is drawn, isn't it, to one man, verse 5. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he'd been in this condition 
for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? A penetrating question. It's difficult, isn't it, not, not to have compassion um, for this man. 38 years, uh, an invalid. What were you doing in 1980? I'd just been born. Rubik's Cube had been invented a long time. This man is probably, probably withered, probably covered uh, in sores, probably begging just to survive, having to crawl uh, to move. This is a time, obviously, where there are no wheelchairs, no stair lifts, no crutches, no disability benefits. A life probably of, of agony, of poverty, of, of isolation. We see, don't we, just, just how physically and relationally desperate uh, the man is, verse 4. I've no one to help me into the pool. When the water is stirred, while I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. So if he's saying, you know, how am I supposed to get well? It, it seems as if he's got, got no siblings, probably no parents, no friends or partner to help him. I've got no one. It's a picture, isn't it, of pitiful desperation. Probably desperation that in superstition leads him to think, you know, if I get into the water, it's probably got mystical healing properties. Perhaps when an angel stirs it, legend had it. A sense of him being institutionalized almost. This is where he comes day after day in that vain hope. Yet he can't even get into the water when it matters. He just gets cubarged by other people. Then with a few words, everything changes. Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured, he picked up his mat and walked. He went home, ordered in a load of food and drink, and partied long into the... No, it doesn't say that. It could say that, couldn't it? It could say that, because what a transformation this, this guy's just experienced. He's had a personal encounter with Jesus, and everything changes. If you've got a broken leg, you, you know, don't you, how long it takes just to get strong enough to, to walk again, how long for the muscles to get back up to scratch. 38 years, this man would have had no muscle to speak of. Reliably told, it would have taken him weeks just to get blood pressure up enough, just to stand, get in the upright position. But he gets up straight away. No surgery, no drugs, no physiotherapy, no hoist, no extended rehab program. What happens? Jesus speaks and a man instantaneously comes to total and utter healing. It is, isn't it, an astonishing miracle. Here is a miracle that only God could accomplish. It is a signpost, John says, to the divinity of Jesus. Only God could do a thing like this. This is divine work of supernatural power. And John says, look, it's accomplished by Jesus in a real place with a real person who was really healed. What's going on here? We've got here God the Father openly, absolutely, comprehensively granting God the Son the power to do his work. 
And God the Son carefully, lovingly, personally, obediently, perfectly fulfilling the Father's will. Many people have tried to illustrate this, haven't they, over, over the years. You may have heard these illustrations. You might be familiar with a, the picture of an ambassador. You know, God the Father is the leader or the ruler uh, of a country. Jesus, his son, is the ambassador. So speaking with the ambassador, it's like we're speaking to uh, God himself. That doesn't really work, does it? Because the ambassador is not the leader or the ruler. There's a difference between the queen and the ambassador sitting in Paris. You're not speaking to the same person. But Jesus is God. He's God's ruler. Well, there's a picture, isn't there, of the, of the family business. So you've got the, the master craftsman father who, who trains, and, trains up and equips his son over many years and then hands over all the work of the business to him. So that in dealing with the son, it's as if we're dealing with the father himself. It's better, but it still doesn't quite work, does it? Jesus at work is God at work. Jesus does what God does. Only God can do what God does. So Jesus is God. You might think, having read this, this would be a jaw-dropping moment uh, for those who, who heard about uh, what had happened. You know, time to rejoice. Look what's happened to this guy after 38 years. He's been coming. Look what's happened. Just think what this could mean, the possibilities, the depth of meaning here. Yeah, instead of celebration, what do we have? We've got controversy. What do the Jews, probably shorthand for the Jewish leaders, say to the man when they've seen that he's transformed? It's the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry a mat. I mean, seriously. You know, I mean, what a killjoy response to an amazing uh, event. They just seem to be blind to the transformation that has happened. They're cross because carrying a mat fell into this kind of spider's web of 39 categories that they had decided were work for the purposes of the Sabbath. Shouldn't be done uh, on a Saturday. But John, John's reference here to the Sabbath is a bit of a flag, a bit of a hint that there's bigger trouble uh, around the corner. And we see that in verse 16. Uh, as the Jewish leaders were told, persecute Jesus. Because Jesus carries out the healing on a Sabbath. What, what he's done and the implications of it are outrageous to them. What is the big implication of this healing? Well, that's our second point. The work of God is the work of Jesus. The work of God is the work of Jesus. Don't you think that the work and the timing of this healing by Jesus, they seem very deliberate, don't they? Jesus is the initiator here. He goes to the pool. He chose the man. He chose the occasion. It wasn't urgent, was it, for the man to be healed? He been there 38 years, it could have waited another day, wouldn't have been a big deal really. Seems, doesn't it, this healing was performed on the Sabbath precisely because it was the Sabbath. Almost to provoke a confrontation with the purpose of bringing out a bigger, a deeper truth. It's as if Jesus has decided, you know what, I'm going to go to this pool 
I'm going to raise this man in order to raise the issue of my identity and my work. And for good measure, I'm going to do it on a Sabbath just to bring home the depth of what this means. Just look at the second half of verse 9. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jewish leaders said to the man who'd been healed, it is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? Never mind the great healing. We're going to go after the man that we don't like who's done it. Amazing. We just need a little bit of work, I think, on the Sabbath, just to understand what's, what's going on here. The Sabbath was one day in seven that, that God gives as a gift to his people, patterned in creation back in Genesis 2. And given, really, as a means of achieving two things. First, an opportunity just to rest. So just to stop work, rest, enjoy God's creation, just enjoy being created. The second is a time to refocus. So on the Sabbath, God's people were commanded to remember the redemption God had won for them, to look ahead with anticipation to the new creation God is going to bring in, to a restored relationship with God, a fresh start where God would enable his people to live with him in perfect rest. Perfect rest in the new creation. So the Sabbath had kind of got misunderstood uh, by the Jews at the time, perhaps, perhaps by us. It's got less to do with not working, more to do with longing, looking forward with anticipation to salvation for a rescuer, for, for the one who would come and deal with sin, rest and refocus. Just, just see what's going on here. This is a healing. This healing is a pointer to the salvation that Jesus can bring. It's a, it's a picture of what God through Jesus will do, can do for everyone who trusts in him. Perfect rest. Complete restoration. Through his blood shed on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. So, so in performing this healing on the Sabbath, Jesus is saying, you know what? I am no ordinary person because God doesn't stop work on the Sabbath. God doesn't need sleep or rest in a physical sense. God doesn't need to refresh. God doesn't have opening and closing hours. God doesn't say, get to Friday and say, thank myself it's Friday. God doesn't need redemption or a rescue. God isn't looking forward uh, to paradise. It's where he lives already. God is the one who provides the rest, the rescue, the redemption, the recreation. He is the one who is the source, as we'll see next week, of life. Jesus effectively claims that same Sabbath exemption for God, for himself. So he can say, can't he? Verse 17, my father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. Jesus is making himself equal with God. That's what he's doing in performing this work on the Sabbath. 
work of God is the work of Jesus. Jesus catches up, doesn't he, with with the man uh, later at the temple, perhaps deliberately seeking him out. uh, And he gives the man, doesn't he, a curious warning. Look Look at verse 14. Later Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, See, you are well again. Stop sinning, or something worse may happen to you. Don't you think that is quite a pastorally brutal comment? You'd be a bit unhappy if Richard came and said that to you. A difficult moment. What could be worse than being paralysed for 38 years? Surely Jesus can't be saying this man's paralysis is a result of sin. Because he says in chapter 9, later on, he makes clear that human sickness is not necessarily the direct result of a personal rebellion against God. So what is Jesus saying here? Jesus is saying this to the man. He's saying, look, I've given you a taste. I've given you an experience of everything the the Sabbath points to. I've given you a taste of restored relationship with God. An eternity that is free of sickness and sin, everything that spoils the world. The possibility of a new creation. A place where there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, where God himself will wipe away tears from human eyes. I've given you an experience of all of this. So don't go and distance yourself from me, says Jesus. Because if you do, if you distance yourself from me, the 38 years of paralysis, it will be as nothing to the horrors that you will face. What is the greatest issue that you face at the moment? Is it a health problem? Is it, is it a family issue? Is it concerns about the kids? Is it challenges at work? At times, life is tough. But what was the great issue, the greatest issue this man faced? He'd been an invalid for 38 years. It doesn't get much worse than that, does it? We'll see next week that Jesus has come to bring life and to judge. He says to the man here, if you distance yourself from me, your paralysis does nothing compared to what you will face. Because to reject Jesus, to ignore him, just to be indifferent to him, to leave him on the shelf, that is to reject God and the consequences are terrible. I wonder if, if, we're, if we're Christian here this morning, sometimes we can, can't we? Just be, we can be tempted to distance ourselves from Jesus. Don't we get at times just a bit numb to the wonder of what Jesus did, the wonder of the miracles, the wonder of who he is, the wonder of the cross, of the salvation that he brings in? Pressures pile in, don't they? Other priorities, they just kind of crowd, crowd in, crowd Jesus out. Certain sins... We know what those are. They just glint a bit with attractiveness. And at times we just keep Jesus at arm's length and we say, 
you know what, I'm just going to go my own way on this. Don't be so foolish, says Jesus. The work of Jesus is to bring salvation, to bring life, and to judge. If you distance yourself from me, you put yourself on the wrong side of history. We're going to look more at that next week uh, as Richard opens up the second part uh, of the chapter. See how Jesus is the one who brings life and to judge. Shall we pray as we finish? Lord God, we do uh, praise you for uh, this miracle. Lord, we praise you for the wonder of the transformation uh, that Jesus brings uh, to this man. Lord, we praise you uh, more so for the wonder of the salvation uh, that you bring through the cross. Lord, the the hope, the certainty of the prospect of perfect rest, a perfect recreation, an eternity with you, worshipping you uh, forever. Lord God, we pray that you would open our hearts, our eyes more deeply to the wonder uh, of the Lord Jesus Christ. That over these coming weeks, as we look at him in more details, his signs, his teaching, uh, the messages that John wants to draw out, Lord, we pray that you would make him bigger in our eyes, bigger in our hearts. That individually as a church, we may be those who follow him uh, wholeheartedly, more and more each day. And that uh, the glory, the eyes of others would be drawn uh, to him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.